Welcome to Episode 8 of What Kind of Country? I'm Victoria Meakin, and I'm moving with my family to the beautiful country of New Zealand. It's 2021, and the world is still in the grip of the coronavirus pandemic, so myself, my husband, and our two young children are governed by New Zealand's very strict managed isolation rules, meaning we'll be spending two weeks in a government-mandated hotel. And I'm delighted to say that I'll be dedicating part of that time to speaking remotely to some very generous Kiwis who've given up their time to help me answer the question, in 2021, what kind of country are we moving to? Coming up in this episode, as much of New Zealand comes out of level four lockdown, I speak to the New Zealand winemaker, James Healy, who's witnessed the industry's rapid expansion since his first vintage in 1979. We're marking another milestone in managed isolation today. At 11.59pm, Christchurch, and much of the rest of New Zealand, moves to slightly more relaxed coronavirus level 3 restrictions, meaning we'll be seeing a bit of activity out of our hotel room window and locals are free to pick up takeaway food and travel more widely, but still need to social distance and only have close contact with their household bubbles. But for many in the country, it means a bit more freedom, and people are already breathing a sigh of relief. My guest today is the winemaker James Healy, who was involved in the meteoric rise of Cloudy Bay in the 1990s before setting up the Dog Point Vineyard with his Cloudy Bay colleague Ivan Sutherland. James and his wife Wendy have four children and met while they were both studying at the University of Otago. Described recently as a creative and adventurous winemaker, James has now embarked on a new family project with Wendy, their daughter Sophie and son-in-law Mark, creating the Able Wine and Cider brand in the Upper Muteri near Nelson at the top of the South Island. Hello James, great to speak to you. Now, hi Victoria, good to speak. We're speaking in the early evening and despite it being uh, lockdown at the moment, has it been a busy day for you in the vineyard? Yes, it has been. We've just finished pruning for the for the year. Under COVID, it's been very difficult to find workers. And um, so we've had to do all of the pruning ourselves along with some friends. And um, we finished about a week ago and we really plan on having a party, but we can't. We can't even do that. How long did the pruning take compared to how long it usually takes? Well, we have only got this stage, we've only got five hectares of vineyards in the ground. And um, if you got people in, that would talk, that would normally take maybe five days or six days. But it took us something like probably four months. Gosh, so, yes. Yeah, yes. well, minimal crew. So, yeah. If I can wind back a little bit, I'm starting this podcast uh, by asking my interviewees the same three questions more generally about New Zealand. So I wonder if I could start, James, by asking you, what is your favourite New Zealand beach? Right. Well, I was born and I was brought up in Rotorua. And um, in the fifth form, I started to develop a craze for surfing. And in the fifth and sixth forms, some friends and I would wag school and go surfing on good days at Mount Monganui. And so the Mount is a wonderful beach, but we progressed from there. And these days, I think it really, it really depends on what you're after. I mean, I, if, if, if you're 
a family in the North Island, okay, I would say the, anywhere in the Bay of Plenty would be great, or even the Coromandel. There are some, just some beautiful beaches. I don't know enough about Northland to be able to recommend it. anything up there, but I've had people say that there are beautiful beaches in Northland as well. Uh, for the South Island, I would say right here in Nelson where we live is Tahuna Nui Beach. It's just a beautiful family beach. It's not deep. It has surfed further out. Nothing major, but a fantastic family beach, and the locals love it. But if you're a surfer and you're after excitement, then definitely the West Coast beaches in the North Island. Black sand, huge surf, exciting. Thank you for all those recommendations. Secondly, where in New Zealand would you recommend I take my young family camping? Well, there are heaps of camping grounds in New Zealand of varying varying sorts. And I think anybody can find a place where you can get isolation along with your camping. But the for me, the most beautiful sort of camping area in New Zealand is um, in Golden Bay, which is in the, uh, the northwest tip of the South Island. It's isolated and it's beautiful. And access to a beach called Totoranui from there, it is amazing. But it's for the intrepid because there are no camping facilities. You have to take everything with you. But it is amazing. Yeah, Totoranui. It's a fantastic place. So that is what I recommend. Fantastic. All going on my list. And uh, a third question along these lines. I wonder, James, if you could name one thing that you think every visitor to New Zealand should experience. Well, apart from Northland, I've travelled all over New Zealand many times. I don't know why I haven't spent more time in Northland, but I just haven't. It just hasn't worked out for me. But the trip, I think, that I think is the most special part of New Zealand that you can, on a road trip, to see, will be down through central Otago, then down to Teanau, and then driving over to Milford Sound. The country there is spectacular. New Zealand is not a big it's not a big country, but you don't have to travel very far and the scenery changes massively. But going through Central and, and, and over to Milford, it is spectacular. Definitely yeah. sounds like one to do. Thank you, James. Turning now to your life and work in New Zealand's wine industry, I've read an article in which you describe your light bulb moment with wine, so to speak. Uh, you were studying biochemistry at the University of Otago and you were given a glass of German Riesling to drink. Could you tell me why that experience was important to you? Well, I suppose, I mean, I'd been exposed to wine when I was younger. My father was an early wine collector in New Zealand. An early wine collector in New Zealand doesn't go back very far. I mean, the industry here, as we know it now, is probably only 40 years old, probably. Not much more than that. But I was studying biochemistry, and um, my professor of genetics was an English guy. Uh, Russell Poulter, and he was quite a special lecturer because he he always made things amusing but educational. He was a fantastic teacher, and what I realised later was that he would spot around, and when you got probably third year into your degree, he'd look around and sort of spot what he considered to be people that were likely food and wine people, and um, he'd hold these parties, not big ones, but the food was amazing and the wines would be amazing. Anyway, he was a lover of German wines and um, he described to us 
so evocatively that we were drooling. Uh, um, <laughs> a Trock and Beer announced Lazy, which is a an extremely late harvest, late picked wine, and this one this one was from the Mosul. Once I'd tasted that wine, I was kind of hooked on how beautiful wine could be, and I think that's really I think yeah that's what that's when it started. After that, I wrote to every winery I could find in the yellow pages and asked for a job, and I finally got one. And where did you start off? I started off in a winery that um, in Auckland uh, that was um, a Lebanese family. The Corbins had, had come over to New Zealand early in the 1900s, and the father, Acid Corbin, had bought this land in West Auckland and uh, planted a vineyard there and built a home and built a winery. And it grew and became quite large. And um, I was just so in love with wine that I was so happy to get that job. And then after that, I just, I don't know, I just, I've just loved every, I've loved every moment of being involved in what I do. Compared to those early days for you in the wine industry, how transformed do you think the New Zealand wine industry is today? It's a completely different beast. Wine ultimately, wine quality ultimately rests on grapes. You know, there's a there's a saying that, um, well, there are several sayings about making wine, but there's one, there's one thing is that you can't make a wine that's any better than the grapes that are grown to make it. And another saying is, it's all in the grape. And a winemaker, a successful winemaker, does as little damage to the wine as they can manage. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the one that I that's that's the one that I believe in. And the areas in New Zealand that are planted, I mean, I my first vintage was 1979, and the grapes were grapes that we don't even have in New Zealand anymore. The grapes that are grown in different areas of New Zealand now have become much more specialised. Back in those days, in the 70s and 80s, we, we thought we could plant any grapes anywhere and make good wine. Mm-hmm. And it took us about 20 years to figure out that that's not the case. That certain grapes suit certain climates and certain soils and certain management techniques and certain vinification decisions. And New Zealand is way, way, way down the track in understanding a lot of those things now. And most of that is a result of trial and error and also the amount of travelling that New Zealand winemakers do overseas and the number of winemakers from European, American, South and North American winemakers come to New Zealand and they bring techniques and ideas and we've grown so much from that. Talking of the European winemakers that may have come to New Zealand, I wonder, has the rise of wine from the New World had a noticeable impact on the Old World winemakers and how they go about their business? Absolutely. There's been an incredible evolution. An interesting grape that would illustrate this would be Pinot Noir. The New World, I can remember in the early 1980s, we used to make wines and call them White Burgundy and Chablis and uh, Red Burgundy, Claret, all of these names are synonymous with, with amazing areas in Europe and France. And uh, Burgundy, Red Burgundy has always been Pinot Noir, but it doesn't say it on a French label. But now some French producers are putting Pinot Noir on their labels because New World wine drinkers, they want to know what they're drinking. They don't want to drink this euphemism for a grape. They want to drink a varietal wine. And I've bought quite a bit of Burgundy that has had Pinot Noir and big letters on the front label. So 
Yeah, there's an example of, of uh, crossing ideas of Europe in the new world. Mm-hmm. Um, you spent 13 years working at Cloudy Bay, and of course, it's become this huge worldwide brand. Looking back at your time there, are you able to describe the formula that made it so successful? Yeah, it was the concept in the first place. The guy that started Cloudy Bay was from Margaret River in Western Australia, a guy called David Honan. And um, he was, I mean, I, I regard him as a genius, really. I, I think I was extremely lucky to have worked there. And he tasted a Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand and was amazed at the flavour. And he was an extremely successful winemaker in Australia. And uh, he'd won the Jimmy Watson Trophy, which is the top of the, the well, what we call the top of the wazza in Australia. Mm-hmm. And uh, he'd won it twice which means he had a very good understanding of a wine market and he tasted that. And I think he, he tasted New Zealand Sauvignon and he thought, that flavour that I can really, I can take and sell it internationally. And he came to New Zealand and he hired, he hired a guy, Kevin Judd, who was working in Auckland at the time. Kevin, I've known Kevin since he, he and his wife first came to New Zealand. And Kevin was, was making the best Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand at the time. And it wasn't even being made from from grapes in Marlborough. And so David approached Kevin. Kevin accepted the position. Kevin moved from Auckland to Marlborough and was involved in setting um, Cloudy Bay up. And then as Cloudy Bay grew, uh, they needed to take people on. And uh, I, I was so struck by the flavour of the, of the fruit from the South Island that um, I called Kevin and I asked him if, if they had a position for me. And he called me back when he said he'd spoken to David. And, and yes, it was like a dream come true, to be honest. I mean, it's a, a, kind of a fairy tale for me, but it happened. And I'm forever grateful to uh, Kevin and to David for the opportunities that I got. And of course, you worked alongside Ivan Sutherland at Cloudy Bay. And then the two of you went to set up uh, Dog Point Wines, which became New Zealand's largest certified organic vineyard. And now you're busy with the Able Wine label, what drives you to want to keep creating something new? Um, good question. Um, I think with uh, Dog Point, I think Ivan and I both sort of reached a stage in our lives where we, we wanted to do, I suppose, just do our own thing, really. And the, the reason that, that I'm involved with Abel is because our eldest daughter and um, her husband returned from Australia and wanted to move to Nelson. And the Upper Motory is a place where I think Chardonnay has the potential. There are one or two producers that, that are making wine from there that, that the wines are really quite startling. And it's not a widely planted region. It's, it's, it's been around for a long time, but it's never attracted a great deal of attention apart from one or two producers there. But the potential, the soils are fantastic. The climate's amazing. And um, I think Wendy and I wanted to um, be involved with that family, I think, and and, and slowly start. We're doing it the old-fashioned way, which is buying land, planting grapes, and just quietly making wine. And so I can't really describe it better than that. That's a a great description. (laughs) Family being at the heart of it as well. Is the Abel Chardonnay already available, James? It's available. Um, Yeah, we don't make very much at this stage. We've just been buying a little bit of fruit and getting used to the flavours that we can coax out of the wine uh, here. Um, but yes, it's available online, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, and we distribute it ourselves. We do not have a New Zealand distributor as yet, 
we're eyeing someone up that we think will be potentially very good when we get a little bigger than we are. But mm-hmm. right now, we don't have enough wine to be able to sell it widely. But yes, yeah, available. We actually sell a little bit in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. But um, and a little bit in Australia. But as I said, at this stage, we're, it's a fledgling thing and, um, yeah, a very family hands-on affair. Fantastic. If I could turn to another love of yours, I know you really enjoy cooking as well. And when it comes to the relationship between wine and food, I wondered if you had a signature dish that you cook at home and what wine you would put with that. Ah, okay. God, I mean, we eat and drink so widely, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose chili and Pinot Noir, surprisingly enough. Years ago, I worked in California and, uh, um, in an area that's well-known for Pinot Noir, and I noticed that all the winemakers there were drinking Pinot with chili, with Mexican food. And, the first, and I just looked at this and thought, you know, this is just terrible. You know, it's just <laughs> ruining the wine and ruining the food. But once I'd been there for about two or three weeks, I realised that it was the most amazing match. It was like the... The heat of the chili brought the red fruit side of Pinot Noir out. Most red wines, ripe, dark fruit is really what you're looking for. And Pinot Noir is not like that. It's very ripe red fruit flavours that portray the potential of Pinot in the best way. So, yes, I would say um, chili. It could be Thai. So something like um, Pad Siu with Pinot Noir. Delicious. That does sound delicious. (laughs) It's a hell of a question. Yes, pretty pretty wide ranging um, as the questions go, but that does sound like a good combination to me. I'm going to end, James, with a final question for you, which is back to those more general questions about New Zealand that I started with. And I wondered if you could tell me what one piece of advice you would give to a newcomer to New Zealand who has just arrived and is planning to make a life here. Um just throw yourself into it, really. I think that I've travelled a lot, and I think, by and large, New Zealand is a very casual country. In fact, I think that some places, their general lifestyles are so formal that they find New Zealand such a different place to be in. That it can, I think it can be a bit alarming for some people. I'm not, I don't mean that in a disturbing way, but I think some people think, oh, my God, I, you know, this is... This is a little bit too relaxed for me because I'm not so, so used to it. Some people just take like it to a duck to water. They do. Mm-hmm. But some people don't. But I would say don't worry. Just open up and be friendly. And you'll find that New Zealanders are extremely friendly in return. And uh, we still like to think of ourselves as number eight wire people. In other words, that's an expression for you can fix anything with a piece of wire. Okay. Because mm-hmm. it's been so far away from the rest of the world you have to be very self-reliant and sometimes your fix-it jobs aren't that smart but they work Mm -hmm. so i I would say just yeah i would just say open up and be friendly and people are going to be very friendly in return they will be if they're not then they're not good new zealanders that's all i can say but the other thing is and this is a good piece of advice and that's watch out for the sun okay the Mm -hmm. sun in the country can fry you you don't think it's doing it but it can fry you And that is extremely good advice. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much for for both of those uh, very sound pieces of advice. And and thank you for your time today, James. It's much appreciated. Once we escape from MIQ, I'm going to seek out some of that Abel Chardonnay as well. 
Oh, yeah. That'd be great. Excellent. I look forward to hearing back from you what you think of it. My thanks to James Healy for that wonderful insight into his life as a winemaker and for those brilliant lifestyle tips for people coming to New Zealand. You can find that Abel Chardonnay and cider by going to abelwine, that's A-B-E-L, dot com. What Kind of Country was written, presented and edited by me, Victoria Meakin. My producer in Christchurch is Bridget de Goldie, and our original music was written and performed in New Zealand by Corey Bezecki. What Kind of Country is a broaden-up production. Mm-hmm.